You may be seated. You can invite you to open up your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you choose to say it. I think I'll probably most of the time refer to it as Habakkuk, but you guys know I pronounce words wrong all the time, but you guys know which book I'm talking about, Habakkuk. And uh, it's a minor prophet, uh, but make no mistake, uh, minor prophets like Habakkuk are called minor because they're short books, not because they're of uh, minor importance. Um, the little book of Habakkuk can be tricky to find, but to help you out, you can turn to the Psalms and then just go to the right through Proverbs and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and then you get to the little books, and it, it, it's there. And if you make it all the way to Matthew, you've gone too far, so go back to the left, just a couple of little books, a few pages at a time, you will find it. And uh, we'll be spending four or so weeks working our way through Habakkuk. And uh, the, the outline of this little book, it, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And if you just look at the, the, the little headings in your English Bible, it really tells you the a very helpful outline. In chapter 1, uh, Habakkuk makes a, a prayer complaint to God, followed by the Lord's response, followed by Habakkuk's second prayer complaint to God. And in chapter 2, the Lord responds to that second complaint. Then there are five woes to the Babylonians. And then finally, in chapter 3, we, we see a, a prayer or a psalm of Habakkuk expressing uh, trust and confidence in God. So the outline is complaint, response, complaint, response, five woes, and then a psalm of trust. And so today we're looking closely at Habakkuk's first complaint and God's first response. So as one commentator put it, The message of Habakkuk is brought via an intense dialogue with the Lord where the prophet seeks to reconcile his understanding of the sovereignty of God with what he sees as the incongruous actions of God. This dialogue draws the reader into a deeper reflection on the means and methods of God. We're going to see Habakkuk is, he's a faithful prophet. And what he's doing is he's struggling with God, struggling to, to reconcile what, what he knows to be true about God. He's struggling to reconcile his theology and what he knows is right and what he knows he believes with what he's seeing and experiencing all around him and the evil and the wickedness there in, in Israel. So keep this, this struggle in mind as I read the text. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wander, be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, 
They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love and for our good. And so we'll look at it uh, with a very simple outline that just follows, again, the headings in, in your Bible. We're going to look at Habakkuk's complaint, the Lord's response, and then we'll end with application for our lives. So Habakkuk's complaint, the Lord's response, and then application for our lives. And so first, Habakkuk's complaint. And before we really get into the, the, the meat of this complaint, we have to think about the context and the character here. Okay, who, who is Habakkuk? And you see in, in verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So we see that Habakkuk, he's a prophet. As I already said, he's one of the 12 minor prophets. Remember, the minor prophets are called minor just because the books are short, not because they're of minor importance. You know, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are longer books. The 12 minor prophets being these shorter prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament. As a faithful prophet, prophet Habakkuk served as a, as a mouthpiece or spokesman from God to the people. However, one of the unique things about this little book is that we see Habakkuk the prophet dialoguing with God about the people more so than, more, more so than seeing him preach to the people a message from God. In fact, the, the prophet's name Habakkuk is a form of the Hebrew word for embrace. As in um, two wrestlers, you know, locking up and embracing as they struggle against one another, which is fitting because this short book really will teach us a lot about this man who wrestles with God in, with, in honest and heartfelt prayer. Uh, Reformed Baptist pastor Walter Chantry wrote a little commentary on Habakkuk years ago, and uh, it was titled Habakkuk, but then the, the subtitle is A Wrestler with God, and I think that's a very appropriate title. Now, beyond this, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. We're not specifically told which king uh, was on the throne uh, whenever Habakkuk uh, was ministering. But the content of the book of Habakkuk allows us to, to narrow down a, a fairly reliable time frame for his ministry. So here's what we do know, that Habakkuk's ministry is, is clearly prior to the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., Okay, we know this because Habakkuk receives a word from the Lord, which we'll see in just, just a few moments, that the Babylonians are coming, and they're going to conquer Jerusalem. But by the time of the book, the fall of Jerusalem had not happened. The Babylonian exile had not happened, so it's dated before uh, 586 B.C. But we also learn that by the time of Habakkuk's ministry, the Babylonians are, are becoming a real force uh, to reckon with on the world stage. And history tells us that this happens around, happens quickly, but it happens around uh, 612 BC when the Babylonians destroyed the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. 
Habakkuk also appears to have ministered after the death of King Josiah. King Josiah was a faithful king. He brought many reforms uh, to the nation of Israel. He brought back the reading uh, of God's word and valuing it and seeking to obey it. But he died in 609 BC. And then after him, the nation of Israel slid, uh, slid back into great disobedience and unfaithfulness. So in summary, we can safely assume that Habakkuk ministered sometime between 609 BC after the death of King Josiah and before 586 BC leading up to the Babylonian exile, which means that uh, the prophet Jeremiah was most likely uh, a contemporary of Habakkuk during the time that he ministered. But look again at verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That word oracle could also be translated as burden. And it's actually fairly common to see prophets referring to the message that they had received from the Lord as a burden. We see this in Isaiah, in Nahum, in Zechariah, Malachi, and we see it here with Habakkuk, that he carries a heavy burden, a heavy burden for his people, a heavy burden for God's glory, and a heavy burden trying to reconcile what he sees in and amongst his, his people and their sin and their unfaithfulness with what he knows to be true about God and God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Right? He knows, he believes, he trusts that, that God's good, that God's holy, that God's sovereign, that God really is in control, but, but he carries this heavy burden of how to reconcile all of this that he knows to be true about God with what he sees happening around him every day. So I want to ask you at the beginning of the sermon, I mean, have you ever been there? Struggling to reconcile what you know to be true, what you, what you confess to be true about God and his authority and his sovereignty with what you see around you. And my guess is, is that if you've lived life very long, the answer is yes, Richard, I, I struggle with this maybe often. It's one of the reasons why Habakkuk is is so relevant for us today and in any time period, and also why it's worth our time and our attention. So the book is going to begin now in verses 2 to 4 with Habakkuk's first prayer complaint that he raises to God. And his prayer complaint really can be summarized with two questions. How long and why? He asks the Lord, how long? I mean, Lord, don't you see how long, I mean, this has been going on for some time. I feel like I'm coming to, to, to the end of my limit. You know, how long will this continue? How long before you're going to intervene and do something? How long before you're going to help? And then he asks the question, why? Lord, will you please connect the dots for me? Will you give me reasons for why this is happening? Think about those two questions, how long and why. Aren't those the exact same two questions that we often ask of God whenever we find ourselves in a time of crisis, a time of suffering? Habakkuk asked, how long? So look at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and will you not hear? And again, I know, I know that many of you, you've been there, that same place where Habakkuk was, oh Lord, how long? And perhaps you're there now. Right, whenever you feel like you're praying and your prayers never ever leave the room. 
You're praying against the the brass heavens, and you're not sure, it doesn't feel like you're doubting that the prayers ever, ever make it through to God's ears. Habakkuk cries, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? But notice that Habakkuk, he's, he's crying out in the right direction. See, he's crying out upward. That he is crying out with a prayer complaint, but he's crying out with a prayer complaint to God. And don't miss this. See, God always welcomes our honesty and our heartfelt prayer, even if it's crying out to say, Lord, how long? See, your God can handle your honesty, your complete and utter honesty and transparency in your prayers. He, He welcomes that. He's not offended whenever you cry out to him and ask him how long. But I think it is helpful to remember, as a pastor friend of mine does, makes this distinction between groaning to God and grumbling about God. There's two different things, right? We see Habakkuk groaning upwards to God in this honest prayer, asking God, God, how long? God, why? And that's very different than, let's say, what what we see throughout the Old Testament during the Exodus story when the people of God are grumbling about God. Whenever they're grumbling about God, that's that's sinful and that's wicked. But see, Habakkuk is not rebuked for this honest prayer complaint that he raises to God. Scottish pastor and professor John Mackay says this, Habakkuk was not the first to ask, how long, O Lord, nor will he be the last It is part of the sin-warped condition of fallen humanity that time and again situations arise which seem to demand immediate divine intervention to rectify them. And God does not intervene. He does not answer the prayers of his people for revival. He does not punish wrongdoers nor deliver their victims. In such circumstances, faith is acutely aware of the tension that exists between confessing that God is just and powerful and witnessing the apparent triumph of wrong and cruelty. From this perplexity arises the cry of faith, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and will you not hear? See, that's, that's the essence of what Habakkuk's prayer of complaint is. So look at verses 2 and 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and condition and contention arise. So he cries out, how long? He cries out, why? But notice that Habakkuk is talking about what he sees in Israel. What he sees among the people of God, not what he sees in the surrounding pagan nations. That he sees his fellow countrymen committing iniquity doing wrong, living lives of destruction and violence and strife and contention with one another. And Habakkuk is essentially asking God, God, do you see what's wrong with this picture? Do you care what's wrong with this picture? God, from my perspective, everything's wrong with it. And so how long will this continue? Why is it happening? God, why have you not stepped in and done something? What are you waiting on? God, I know who you are. I know what your promises are. 
He goes on in, in the beginning of verse 4, so the law is paralyzed. Right? I mean, what, what a phrase, right? What a word picture. The law is paralyzed. Habakkuk says, God, it seems as if the law is numb or frozen, powerless, impotent. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with the law. But what this prophet means is that things are so bad that the very people of God are ignoring God's word. And they're treating it as if it's powerless and meaningless. Look at verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. See, Habakkuk's lamenting the, the iniquity, the sin, the wrongdoing, the destruction, the violence, the strife, the, the contention, the, the, the injustice he sees all around him. Then look at the end of verse 4. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Right? It appears that the, that the wicked have the righteous surrounded have them cornered, have them hemmed in, and that, and that justice goes out crookedly or in some bent or twisted way. He says, you know, God, do you not see the sin that's all around me? Surely you care, God, do you care? You know, where, where are the consequences for all of this sin? It seems like the, the wicked are winning and the righteous are losing. He's like, God, do you hear me? You know, are you going to respond? Will you intervene? Will you save? Are you going to do anything? So I mean, have you ever felt like Habakkuk? My guess is you have. As you look at the world, our nation, our city, our church, your own life, you know, deception, lies, betrayal, scheming, slander, wickedness, unfaithfulness, selfishness, immorality, on and on the list goes. And Habakkuk had a front row seat to see a society plunging into moral and spiritual ruin that, that, that went from the king and the political leaders down to the common people, that virtually everyone seemed to have forsaken the Lord and his word. Right everywhere Habakkuk turned, sin was running rampant. You know, perhaps you feel the same way about our world uh, whenever you, you make the mistake of watching the news. I mean, I try to avoid it as much as I can and just you know, pretend like it's not, not there because it's, it's not encouraging. You know, acts of terror, mass shootings, the evil of human trafficking, spiritual deception and unfaithfulness, moral insanity of, uh, in categories of gender and sexuality, and the list goes on and on, right? In so many ways, it certainly seems like the world is spinning out of control, and that's what, that's what Habakkuk felt. And so he's trying to reconcile. The world feels like it's going out of control. But yet, God, I, I know that, that, that you're in control. And so this prayer in verses uh, 2 to 4 is, God, help me reconcile these two things. Uh, Pastor and Professor John Currid says, have you ever struggled with this issue? Have you ever asked questions similar to those of Habakkuk? Have you ever complained and lamented over the course and direction of the world, of the church, of your own life? Have you ever wondered whether God is truly working in this broken realm, or if he even really cares? Living by sight would seem to dim our view of the fact that God is sovereign and that he rules over all, and that's what we must not do. We must not merely live by sight. 
If you just merely live by sight, you're not going to be able to reconcile what you see happening in the world around you and in, in your own heart with what the Bible says is true of God. And so a big, a big part of what the, uh, the book of Habakkuk is doing is calling us to not merely live by sight, but also to, to walk by faith as we wrestle with God and as we, as we remember that he really is sovereign. The quote goes on, is he not our God? Does he not often appear to be on the sidelines, leaving the believer in his suffering and hardship? Why is he not working? Right, and and that's that's a good summary of Habakkuk's complaint, right? He's asking God, God, why are you not working? How long are you going to stay on the sidelines? What we're going to see next is that God does answer Habakkuk. But before we look at it, you need to be prepared. It's not the answer that the prophet expected, and it's not the answer that he wanted. In fact, if Habakkuk would have spent months in prayer and fasting and trying to imagine, okay, what is the most devastating answer that God could ever give me in response to my complaint, he would not have dared to even go this far. Because it's really not good news. So look at the Lord's response in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So you look at verse 5 and you see God does not rebuke or correct Habakkuk, but God does give him four imperatives. He says, look, see, wonder, be astounded. And you can't see this in our English translation, but all four of those imperatives are in plural, second person plural. So what God is saying to Habakkuk is really he's saying to all of his people. that He's saying, y'all need to look and see and wonder and be astounded. You need to open your eyes and not miss what I'm about to do. John Courage says, remember that Habakkuk has been questioning whether or not God is working because injustice and violence are rampant in Judah. God is answering the prophet with a resounding yes. And the Lord's work is taking place in your days. It's not that God has simply been working in the past, although that is true, or that he will work in the future, although that is also true, but that he is working now. And and that's one of the hardest things for us to actually believe. My guess is, is that most of us, maybe all of us who are professing Christians would be able to say, yes, I know God did incredible things in the past, and I believe that, that, that Jesus is going to come again one day soon, and God's going to do incredible things in the future. But where we struggle is to actually believe that our God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, is really the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's still working and ruling and in control here and now, in our lives, in all of the details of our lives. John Curry goes on, the Lord's answer to the prophet is as true today as it was in Habakkuk's time. Whether or not we have eyes to see or ears to hear, the reality is that God is working in marvelous, wondrous ways. See, God is always doing far more than we can see and comprehend. That he's, God is always doing thousands, millions of different things in thousands and millions of different people's lives at any given time. He's always doing far more, far more than than we can comprehend. We can't always connect all of those dots. 
Do you know that? Do you know that your God is always working? As, as our elder Tom Harrison prayed earlier, he never slumbers, he never sleeps. You know, God always works the night shift and the day shift. That he's always working. You know, do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you pray as if you know and believe that? We should because it's true. So look again at Habakkuk 1 verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now remember, the, the work that God was doing in their days that they would not believe if told, it was not good news, not in the short term. It was that God was raising up the Babylonians to be used by God to bring judgment and chastisement and discipline on his covenant people, which is what God had repeatedly promised his people that he would do over and over again throughout the scriptures if they persisted in being unrepentant and unfaithful. And they had. So now God was going to be faithful to his promise. Pastor O. Palmer Robertson says, so the Lord's admonition to see, be astonished and wonder, is directed to the covenant nation. The whole of his people should stand amazed at the awesome judgment that is coming. For no less than the whole of the nation shall be struck by this judgment. The covenant people of God are told to watch the storm arising, to absorb it, observe it closely as it advances, and to wonder at the force with which it finally breaks on Israel itself. And God will now spell this out for Habakkuk. Look at verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So the, Chal the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. And God is raising them up. And they're going to attack and they're going to destroy, lay waste to Jerusalem. They're going to carry the Israelites away to, into exile in 586 B.C. It's going to happen. God tells Habakkuk, that's what's coming. You want to know what I'm doing, here's what I'm doing. Now, the irony of God's response to Habakkuk is that God will use a wicked and unjust nation to punish and discipline the wicked and unjust Israelites. See, Habakkuk, he was brokenhearted over the sin of his fellow countrymen, and he was zealous for the glory of God to be upheld. But the impending attack of the Babylonians was not what Habakkuk had in mind. That's not what he was hoping for in answer to his prayers, right? I mean, Habakkuk had, I mean, he, he had an answer in mind, right? It probably went something like this, you know, God, how long, God, why? I mean, won't you just, can we replace the wicked king with, with another good king? You know, can, can we replace the, the unfaithful prophets and priests with faithful prophets and priests? You know, God, can there be a kind of a strategic attack and, and disciplining and, and chastising, you know, the especially unfaithful people in Israel who are around us? You know, yes, it's going to hurt a little, but can this be kind of a quick thing that we kind of endure and then move on from? And that's often, isn't that often the way we approach God in prayer? That we already have in our minds and hearts how we think it ought to go. You know, we already know how God ought to answer. It ought to work out just fine for us. But friends, that's often not the way God answers our prayers. The, the Welsh preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, says, we all tend to prescribe 
the answers to our prayers. We think that God can come in only one way. But Scripture teaches us that God sometimes answers our prayers by allowing things to become much worse before they become better. He may sometimes do the opposite of what we anticipate. He may overwhelm us by confronting us with a Chalcedian army. And that's exactly what God tells Habakkuk that he's going to do. And so listen to how the Babylonians are described in the following verses. In verse 6, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that, uh, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings, not their own. So they're a bitter and hasty nation. I mean, that's their identity. They're, they, they're, they practice a scorched earth philosophy of war. They, they take and they steal the property of other nations. You see in verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They play by their own rules. And they make the rules up as they go. And the rules are not fun for anybody else but them. You see verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle swift to devour. So this ruthless and vile army attacks like leopards, like hungry wolves, like eagles, or that Hebrew word translated eagle could also be translated vulture. So the point is that Leopards, wolves, eagles, vultures, they're swift, they're vicious as they attack and devour their prey. And God says, this is who the Babylonians are. And I'm raising them up. And, and I've, I've sent, I'm sending them towards you. They're on their way. They're coming. You look at verse 9. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. Right? The Lord war- warns Habakkuk and the people of Israel that when the Babylonians come, they're coming for one singular purpose. They're coming for violence. The Babylonians be wielded as an instrument of justice in the hands of God. And as I said earlier, it will be ironic justice. Because the violence the Babylonians come to bring, that's their singular purpose. That's the same word that Habakkuk used in verses 2 and 3 in his complaint to God whenever he's describing what the Israelites were doing to one another. So put another way, the people of God will eventually reap what they sow. And friends, that's true for us. So often, the punishment for our sin is found within the sin itself, right? Sin never, ever, ever takes us where we want to go. It never makes things better. It's never worth it. Sin makes all of these promises to us. But it never, ever delivers on the promises. Look again at verse 9. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Okay, think about Where have you heard that phrase before? Where have you heard that idiom of being counted like sand before? Maybe think of a, of a positive way you've heard it. See, because what this is, this is a, a deliberate echo of God's earlier promise to Abraham. Think back to Genesis 22, verse 17. After Abraham takes Isaac up on Mount Moriah, he raises the knife to sacrifice him. God stays his hand, provides the ram caught in the, in the thicket nearby. And then God makes this promise, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And you look back to Habakkuk 1.9. 
They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. There in Habakkuk 1, God is echoing the words of blessing in the curse that is the Babylonians because of the people's sin. That soon the Babylonians will possess the Israelites like sand and they'll be carried away into exile. You see in verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Right, the Babylonians, they're so fierce, they're so fearless that they mock and they laugh with derision at all of their enemies. They're not afraid of anyone. It doesn't matter how impenetrable a fortress has been throughout history, they're going to pile up an earthen ramp and they're going to take it. They're going to take it all. They're going to leave nothing in their wake of destruction. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So don't miss what God says. The Babylonians are guilty men. It's a wicked, wicked nation. God's using them for his righteous and good purposes, but what they will do is wicked. And they're going to be responsible and culpable and punished and judged for their wicked actions. What we see is that the Babylonians, they don't worship God, as verse 11 says, whose own might is their God. Like, like they think that they're God-like. They don't think that they have to answer to anyone else. And they're wrong, and God is going to use them for his righteous purposes, and then God will eventually punish them for their own sin. Okay, so we've seen Habakkuk's complaint, the Lord's response. They're going to end just with a couple of applications for our lives. Okay, and both of these applications can be summarized with one word, and the one word each, both times begins with the letter R. Okay, so the first is remember. I've said it to you over and over again, but I've got to say it again. Remember that God is sovereign. He really, really is. He's, he's sovereign over all things, even whatever it is that you are going through. Right? God and God only is seated on his throne, and he's directing all things. He's working all things together after the counsel of his own will. See, friends, what this means is that all of history is under God's control. All of history follows God's plan. All of history is according to God's timetable. And all means all, all the big things, and it means all the small details of our lives. So listen to one more quote from John McKee. God's rule is not to be thought of as a series of powerful responses to events initiated by others. Events on earth occur, occur according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. This is true not only in the broad sweep of history, but also in the smallest details of the lives of individuals. God's control is most evident at the incarnation, when he sent his son, when the time had fully come. That is, at just the right moment, when he decided that all the varied strands of history had come together just as he had required. In the present age, God's purposes are determined by his plan to bring his people to holy perfection so that they will be capable of worshiping him eternally. Therefore, when we are baffled by what is happening, we are not to give way to despair, but to approach him even in our bafflement and ask that he sustains us. The forces that are ranged against God's people are working out his purposes. He is able to bring good out of evil even though we may be blind as to how that can happen. 
And so remember these truths as you pray. Remember these truths as you trust your good and sovereign God in the best of times and in the most difficult of times. Remember, the last application is to repent, or if you want another R word, receive and rest in the good news of the gospel. See, there are quite a few places in the New Testament where the book of Habakkuk is quoted, and one of those places is in Acts 13 when the Apostle Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, and he quotes Habakkuk 1 verse 5, and so listen from Acts 13 verses 38 to 41, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, talking about Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he's quoting Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You see, Paul's preaching the gospel. Forgiveness of sins through Christ, not through trying really, really hard to obey the law, but through Christ. And so, do you see, why does he use Habakkuk 1 as he preaches in that synagogue? What is his point? His point is, you know, just as Habakkuk was wondering, God, why are you not doing anything? Why are you not stepping in? Why are you not helping? And the Lord says to Habakkuk, you have no idea what I'm doing. I'm doing a lot. You just don't know yet, but you're going to see. Well, I think what Paul is saying is, is that don't think that your God has done nothing for your salvation. Don't think that, don't miss that your God has been working, that your God has sent his son, the second person of the Trinity to take on flesh, to dwell among you, to live a perfect sinless life on your behalf, to die the, the substitutionary atoning death on the cross, to shed his blood on your behalf to pay for your sin, to, to rise from the grave. Paul saying that tomb was empty. Why? Because God has been working. He raised Christ from the dead. And so don't think that God has done nothing for your salvation. You see, I, I worry that, that so many people today, we, we, really, we think that. We think that God has really not done anything, that he really hasn't really sent his son, that rather what we're supposed to do is just try really, really hard to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we, we stop doing some bad things, and we try to do some better, nicer things, and we hope that if we can do the, the better, nicer things for long enough, and sincere enough, and consistently enough, then God maybe, just maybe, will let us earn our way into heaven. But that's not at all what the gospel says. Through Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes in Christ repents of their sin and receives and rests in the salvation that he has accomplished is freed from everything in which we cannot be freed by the law of Moses. And praise God that God has worked on our behalf. That he has sent his son Christ. And Christ has accomplished our salvation. So if you're here today and you don't know this Christ, then trust him. He is the, he is the savior you need. Cry out to him. For those of us who are believers, I mean, the next time you wonder, okay, is, is God in control? Realize that in the fullness of time, God did what he promised he would do when he sent his son. Born of a woman, born under law to become a curse for us. 
Next time we wonder, okay, does God really love me? Does God still love me? You know, of course he does. He loves you enough to send his son to live and die and rise from the grave for you. The next time you're, you're looking out at the world and, and you're trying to reconcile it with what you believe about God and his goodness and his sovereignty, and you wonder, okay, is God really committed to me? Will God really see me through this, whatever this is for you? Then you know, of course he will. Because God has promised that, that Christ will bring all of his people all of the way home. And dear Christian, that most certainly includes you. It includes me. And praise God that it does. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we acknowledge that in many ways we know what it's like to, to be Habakkuk and to struggle to make sense of what we have read in your word. And we profess to believe about you and your character, your attributes, your sovereign control over all things. And and then there's what we, what we see and what we experience all around us in the world, in the church, in our own families, in our own hearts. Lord, please write these truths upon our hearts. Help us to, to groan well upward toward you, wrestle well with you and with your word and with your promises. Lord, help us to remember that you really are in control of all things. And all means all. It means the good things and it means the impossibly hard things. And may we rest and receive the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.